This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. I'm John Stashauer, in this week for Jason Kelly. And I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Mike Lynch. And over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports, talk to some of the biggest players in the industry, and coming up, we'll talk with the president of the Oakland Athletics, Dave Cobble. But guys, we talked about the big news in college football this week in, in the podcast about at least the Big Ten and Pac-12 not playing in the fall, the other conferences going forward. The NFL, of course, planning to go forward. Training camps are going on right now. Do you guys watch ever watch uh, Hard Knocks on HBO? Yes. Yeah. This is, of course, the show, the reality-type show where they uh, go inside the training camps. This year they're doing the two Los Angeles teams together, the Rams and the Chargers, and you Definitely got a feeling of how different these training camps are. Um, first of all, they haven't even put the pads on yet. They're, they're wearing shorts, T-shirts, and masks. That's it. And uh, they're getting tested constantly and getting their temperatures taken constantly. And you saw the kind of the interaction with the health workers um, at the training camps. It's, I mean, it really gave an indication of just how different this training camp is. It's something I always bring up, and I know I'm, I'm beating a, a, a dead horse, but I mean, it's it, when you're not playing the game in a bubble, you you open yourself, and you said it yourself, John, you open yourself up to a, a, a myriad of situations, and you hope everybody, cross your fingers, everybody behaves in this, and uh, they don't go out to do something crazy, whatever, and then bring in and COVID, and then and then the whole thing is all shot to smithereens. Bubbles working. We know that zero positive tests for the NBA, zero positive tests for the National Hockey League. The Dallas Cowboys and New Orleans Saints are considering going into a bubble, but when you're talking about a basketball or hockey team, you're talking about a party of 30, 35 people. Now you talk about an NFL team, and before you make your cuts, I mean, you've got a roster of 80 players or 90 players and then this, all the assistant coaches. I don't see how it's possible. You'd have to take over a couple of a hotels or a whole apartment complex. So like baseball, the only thing that could ruin the NFL are the NFL players themselves misbehaving. Like we've seen with some baseball players, uh, Zach Plazek of the Cleveland Indians broke protocol when he was in Chicago. They got a rental car and they said, hit the road, Jack, and they sent him home. Well, what's also interesting is, are these football players, can they, now they're tested constantly, I understand, but let's say yeah. they test negative, but it's not in their, they, they didn't catch it, whatever. I mean, can you get it from the actual hand-to-hand contact of playing on the field? Like, we've had the Marlins and the Cardinals, it went through both teams, but it did not, the teams that they were playing, remember the Marlins played the Phillies, and everyone said, oh, now the, now the Phillies are going to get it. Well, they didn't. So that's the thing. They haven't started real contact in these training camps yet, but that's a real concern if they're, they're going to, you know, we know how these linemen go against each other on every play. 
I mean, what if they tr- if somebody's got it and then somebody gets it from actually playing on the field? Well, I, I, and I saw it on uh, one of the uh, news shows, and I, I forgot who the expert was. He said, "Look, how are you going to play football in distancing six feet and not breathe on the other guy? Because that's how it really spreads. So you, you're going in for a hit, top speed." It, that alone, you're going to knock the wind out of somebody. So how is that going to – out of all the sports, I, I just – I don't see how this can work. But I, I hope it does because I'm a huge football fan, obviously. But I, I just don't my, see it. And, Michael, before you even have that tackle, let, here's my concern. Start in the huddle. The quarterback yeah. is face-to-face with 10 other people, and they're like inches away from him. And the same thing in the defensive huddle. So before you even have a handoff, a block, or a tackle, you've got droplets that are just being spewed all over 10 different teammates. When, you know, Cam Newton comes into the huddle and he says, you know, uh, King Wright, uh, 44, play pass on two, ready, break, and boom. Now you come over, you're standing over the center, and there's a nose guard uh, probably three feet across from you. And, you you know, to think of uh, Peyton Manning, Omaha, Omaha. More droplets. So before the ball's even hiked, we've got possible uh, potential for contamination right there. No, I can see it now. It's like then you can't. Sometimes you can't even hear it with this face guard. It's like you, Omaha, what Iowa? What'd you say? What you, you can't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me, by the way, if I may, um, there's another major story that uh, is out. Uh, a group of Democratic senators led by New Jersey's. Cory Booker is pushing for a college athlete's bill of rights. It will allow compensation and health care coverage for the players who drive a $16 billion industry. And, and what I forgot about this, uh, Booker, he played tight end for Stanford. So he announced the proposal saying it's to advance justice and opportunity. Well, changes are coming, you know, in college sports. And, and, and you know, I, I don't think there's any question about it. We've seen it. We've seen it as a result, as a, as a, you know, after all of the Black Lives Matter protests and athletes being involved, we've seen athletes now push back against their own coaches at times, kind of thing you didn't see before. And now we see athletes, you know, we saw it in the Pac-12. They wanted a kind of a voice in the room, a, a seat at the table about what was going to happen. Um, there's no question. This goes to all of that. There's... Changes are coming. I'm not sure when, but the day is going to come where um, it's it's going to be a whole different ball game. Well, we've seen out in Colorado State uh, some of the players uh, saying that the coaching staff said, "Don't tell anybody if you're tested positive." We're putting the football season ahead of the players' health there, and that was kind of alarming when that story came out. I think this is a step in the right direction uh, by uh, the College uh, Student Athletes Bill of Rights. I know we all have different opinions whether the players should be compensated or not. Um, I've got my own thoughts on that. But right now, I think that their health and safety, proper insurance, uh, and also avoiding risks and not being penalized by losing their scholarship or any eligibility if they decide to not play because they're fearful for their health. And we're happy to be joined by the president of the Oakland A's, Dave Cobble. Remember, you can catch A's baseball on Bloomberg Radio 960 AM in the Bay Area. In fact, I think that right when that deal was struck, the team took off on a nine-game winning streak. So it was a good deal uh, all around. So, Dave, we want to get to uh, the team playing well and the the challenges of, of 
winning in a, with a smaller payroll that's been going on, obviously the stadium issue. But I, I want to go back to late June, early July, when we had this back and forth in baseball seemingly every day. Things got ugly. The union, the commissioner, how many games should be played, prorated salary, all of that. I don't know how privy you were to what was going on behind the scenes, but was there a time when you were really worried that there would not be baseball at all this year? I mean, I always thought we could come to an agreement with the Players Association. I think the players, the owners, everyone wanted to do everything they could to play. Uh, we know that in past um, situations and um, you know, areas like you know, 9-11 or back to World War II, that baseball has been a healing force in, in crises. And so I think we all felt a sense of responsibility to get back on the diamond. Um, obviously, the negotiations kind of unfolded in the public, uh, but we did get through that. We came up with a great protocol that we think has been working very well, and we're playing baseball, and we're actually playing really good baseball, the A's. And so it's great to be able to turn on the TV and watch the games and you know, recreate as much of the atmosphere as we can without the fans. You became... Uh part of the president of the Oakland A's, I believe, in 2016. And the, one of the first things you did was increase the amount of marketing for the A's, uh, especially in San Francisco, which obviously is a very smart move. Can you can you take us through that and, and, and your thoughts? Well, you know, there are baseball fans all over the Bay Area. And, you know, having two teams in the same market affords you the opportunity to kind of have that really big rivalry kind of like think European soccer, the derbies between Arsenal and Tottenham. And so I wanted to play that up and make that a big part of the experience here in the Bay Area. And so we went into San Francisco and we got aggressive going after fans of baseball in San Francisco to adopt the A's. We did the McCovey Cove takeover where we took an armada of ships into McCovey Cove, all A's decorated, Stomper, our mascot, the elephant on a boat bullhorns, the whole thing. We did a hat exchange, so if anyone had a Giants hat, you could exchange it for a brand-new A's hat. And I think we had something like 2,800 hats that we got, Giants hats. And so we did a lot of really fun kind of guerrilla marketing efforts. It created a lot of buzz in the local community here in the Bay Area and really became even a national story. David, I know you've got a a proposal to build a new stadium down at the Howard Terminal, a very kind of cozy stadium, 34,000 seats. Um, I'm up in Boston, so the the 30,000 to 38,000 is quite familiar with us up here. But you also have a plan to upgrade the Coliseum. Which is your primary plan right now? Well, our plan for for a new ballpark is at the waterfront at Howard Terminal. But we also have a plan with the city of Oakland and the county to work on redeveloping the Coliseum site. So we don't abandon East Oakland so it can be an economic driver for that part of the city. Um, it retains the arena where the Warriors used to play and builds kind of a mixed-use development around it. Um, so that's one of our real estate projects. And then the other one is at the waterfront. We have this incredible jewel box ballpark, 34,000, designed by Bjarke Ingels Group, a Danish architect, incredible water views, and then a development around an village that can really – um, take the Oakland waterfront to a new level and really have the same kind of renaissance that you saw in San Francisco when they built Oracle Park. So, Dave, what's the timeline here? When you're doing all this work, when can you envision opening day for the A's at a new ballpark? Well, I think the key thing is to get all the political approvals next year. You know, everything kind of flips a year when we had COVID. 
you know, originally that was all going to happen this year in 2020. But some of the public meetings that are necessary to get city council approval uh, had to be put off. And so we're looking for a final approval next summer. And then, you know, based on the city's um, priority and where things stand, you know, it takes a couple of years, maybe two and a half years to build it. And so, so we're trying over the next three years or so to get this stadium out of the ground, have a great opening day, have a lot of excitement there. It allows us to retain our players, to have a bigger payroll, to not be so reliant on Moneyball. And I think that can really usher in a, a, maybe even a golden era of baseball in Oakland. A 34,000-seat ballpark, and it's privately financed, which means you guys have some leverage when you're talking about uh, the, the local politicians there. You're not asking for any taxpayer money. This is this is privately financed, so you must have some leverage going into this. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible deal for the city and the community. I mean, it creates over $7 billion in economic impact, mm-hmm. all with private capital, 6,000 permanent jobs, all union construction on another 2,800 jobs. It takes an area that's really an abandoned maritime terminal and turns it into one of the places to be in the Bay Area where ferries can come up and dock and bring people from Sausalito or South San Francisco or Redwood City and just, you know, create vibrancy and, and a reason to come to Oakland and to spend your tax dollars. And so, well, we think the project is very exciting. Um, we have the port already voted in favor of it about a year ago, and we're looking forward to getting in front of the city council and getting this thing approved. David, obviously the Warriors have moved over to San Francisco. The Raiders have gone to Vegas. Uh, if this uh, proposal falls through, are you committed to staying in Oakland, or would you be tempted to move the franchise somewhere else? We are 100% focused on building our waterfront stadium in Oakland. You know, we're rooted in Oakland. We've been here 52 years. We're the last team left. Uh, we feel a great sense of responsibility to represent the town. There's such a great baseball history with players like Frank Robinson and Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart. Um, and then obviously the teams, the Oakland Oaks and obviously the Oakland A's. And so we, we think we can really be successful in Oakland. Obviously, we still need to get the ballpark built. It is our North Star. And that's why we're putting so much effort into doing that um, at this time. Dave, the team playing very well. Uh, I think we've all probably, if we haven't read the book Moneyball, we saw the movie, maybe both. Um, is Billy Bean, does he watch the games now? I mean, that, was the, that was the thing. I saw my son watch that movie. He's like, really? He's the general manager? He doesn't watch the games? But he still puts this team, these teams together despite these small payrolls. How, how does he do that? It's really amazing. I've been working with Billy the last you know, three or four years, and his team himself, David Forrest, who's our GM, who was his right-hand man, um, they just do an exceptional job of trading for the right players, evaluating talent, and then having the discipline to make the right decisions, especially when a lot of the maybe market forces would be pushing you a different direction. And that's created just some incredible teams and incredible track record of success over the last 20 years making the playoffs more than half the times with basically one of the lowest payrolls in the league. And, you know, once again, we have one of the lower payrolls. We're a smaller market club. We don't have revenue sharing, but we're competing. We have the best record in the American League, and we have some of the best young players in Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Sean Manaya, Ramon Laureano. So just a team you, you really love watching, and we're excited to be where we are. I always ask this uh, when we talk about baseball, and I brought this up numerous times. Uh, Major League Baseball is going to continue on in in a COVID post era. It'll be fine. 
But minor league baseball, that's a totally different story. Can I get your thoughts about where do you see the future for minor league baseball going? Well, it's interesting because I actually started a minor league, the Golden Baseball League, back in 2004. Right. And so right. I'm very familiar with the business. It's under tremendous flux. Um, obviously, in losing all your game day revenue, there really is no business there. It's a location-based entertainment. So I think that's going to pose a big challenge for the industry. And then the relationship between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, you know, the contract expires this year. So all these things are happening at the same time. So I think there's some real questions. I think it's important for baseball to be played in small towns. It's an incredible way to build and market our, our product. And I think it's something that has to continue in a real way. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can find a way through. But I do think it, it will be forever affected by COVID um, and by kind of the timing of, of this pandemic hitting our industry. David, you have something interesting called office hours. Will you actually have fans come in? And let me ask you, what kind of hat do you wear? Like, are you a psychiatrist? Are you the um, sort of uh, <laughs> the sounding board for people that have uh, suggestions or complaints? I, I wear all the hats. I mean, I must have 20 hats to wear in that situation. But people will come in and, you know, some people are really interested in a job and getting into sports. You know, some people talk about their love of the 1970s A's, the swinging A's. You know, some people are upset of, on who's playing second base and think that they have a better concept or someone to sign. So, I mean, and some people just want to sell me insurance. You know, it's like it's the full gamut. You get a little bit of everything. Um, but it's it's an incredible way to keep your finger on the pulse of the fan base and interact with people and be approachable and transparent. And I really enjoy it. And, and when we started it, I, I'd done it with the Earthquakes, my, the previous team in San Jose, the soccer team. But with the A's, it was on such a bigger platform. It's something that other team presidents don't do. And I've had hundreds and hundreds, probably even a thousand people now that I've met with that way. And it's definitely one of my more enjoyable things of, of the role. Dave, you're obviously so much involved with marketing. How much, and this is goes for every team in baseball and in the commissioner's office, but how much are you focusing on trying to get younger people to love baseball because we we're old we all love baseball <laughs> but what about the younger generation well i i think we need to do more as an industry um you know i have two teenage daughters and i see it firsthand that you know sitting down and watching it nine nine innings of baseball it's it's not as appealing as some of these other forms of content and our players are not as outspoken or, you know, quote-unquote entertaining as maybe some of the other leagues. And so we need to do a better job. We need to promote our players. We have great players. We have players like Ramon Laureano, who's like the superstar center fielder. We need to do a better job of making them global icons and stars like the soccer players, like the NBA players. And I think that can draw people into the sport because when you, when you get hooked on baseball – it's really a lifestyle. It's something that you just want to watch. It's in the background of your life. It happens every day. And as someone who grew up in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and big Indians fan, and just seeing how that could influence your life and your family, we need to transport that to the next generation. And so that's, that's something that we're trying to do everything we can to promote, uh, both at the team level, the club level, and then also in our interactions with the league and doing everything we can to, to promote that. Well, as John said, we're old, and you brought up the 70s A's, and I remember very vividly on TV 
watching Vita Blue make this magnificent catch on the wall in the in the series. And I just wonder, from selling merchandise, I don't know if you guys do it, have you guys sold the the old series where you guys played with Reggie Jackson and and Catfish and, and all those guys? Is there a, a way you could just sell that and, and market the, a DVD for that? Yeah, we've actually done that. And we actually, during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, we actually showed that stuff on NBC California, and it got actually really good ratings. And, you know, we even went and changed last year. I brought back the Kelly Green uh, uniforms that we hadn't yeah. had since the 70s. And it was a great way to connect to our history and and uh, the nostalgia around those 1970s teams because they had some of the biggest, you know, characters in all sports history. You know, Reggie Jackson and, you know, obviously um, Catfish and you know, Charlie Finley had everyone with a different name, like Raleigh Fingers. And, and those are just fun teams. And, you know, especially the, the, even the color of everything. You know, was, everything was in technicolor there. And I think we can do the same thing with the A's these days. And we've always been at the forefront. And we've been dynamic with our marketing and promotion. And we want to build on that and, and continue that tradition as we move forward. I love the green uniforms, by the way. They just, and, and, and in the California sunshine, they just stand out. Um, love them, love them, love them. Um, if you were the president of like the Yankees or the Cubs or the Red Sox or the Dodgers, you probably wouldn't have to be as active marketing right now. And, and I mean no disrespect by this at all, but it almost seems like your job is like the president of a, like a minor league team because you're constantly trying to promote, you're trying to market, and you're trying to sell. Did, did, you, did you relish that role? I mean, we've always been kind of a challenger team. Um, the A's because, you know, we were the second team in the market. But I think we know deep down that not only do we have the talent, but we also have like a fan base that wants to get behind the club and kind of, you know, have that underdog status. I mean, it can be motivating, I think, for everyone involved. And, and, and we've really taken the mantle on that and we've done everything that we can do to promote that. And I think that's one of the really natural storylines that comes out. Uh, of leading the A's, which which is, I think is a really fun thing. Dave, I want to get to this because I found this in your Wikipedia that you graduated from Stanford in the late 90s, 1998, which was a big year in baseball with McGuire and Sosa. And you did, you and a friend did something that I think is on a lot of people's bucket lists. You drove across the country and went to every ballpark. 30 parks in 38 yeah. days. How, how did you do that? What are your memories of that? Well, it was an incredible summer. You know, me and Brad Noel, my best friend, we traveled to all 30 uh, ballparks in 38 days, drove 15,000 miles, had an incredible series of meetings with people, whether it was Mariano Rivera in the Yankees uh, bullpen or just driving 1,000 miles overnight from Tampa Bay to Baltimore. And it was just a great way to kind of rekindle my passion for baseball, to see all the ballparks in the United States, and to just get a sense of how, even though America can be so different at times, there are unifying things like baseball. And that was a great summer. That was Sosa, McGuire. We had the big home run chase. The Yankees won all those games. I mean, it was as good a year. And, uh, and we, then we wrote a book on it called The Summer That Saved Baseball, which you can still get on Amazon. And it was just an incredible experience and just treasure all the memories of those fun times. I can't let that go. You drove 38 <laughs> days to 30 ballparks 
and and, and man, we we are going cross country here, obviously. <laughs> everywhere we went everywhere i mean we we slept on the field of dreams in left field and then at four o'clock in the morning we heard the sound <laughs> and it was the sprinklers we got drenched we didn't know it Which was hilarious you know it was fun times and, and the stadiums and the players and we kept running into luis gonzalez who played for the tigers we ran into we saw him play five times and uh he saw the stands and it, it was just a, it was a we were hamming it up, and we were on TV. We were on the Today Show, Sports Center. So it was it was an incredible lifetime experience. And um, yeah, I can't believe it was over twenty years ago. It was crazy. I got to ask, which one was your favorite ballpark? Our favorite was Fenway. You know, we really liked. Hey, it. <laughs> number one, Fenway. Number number two is Wrigley, which we love. We we like Tiger Stadium. You know, we went there before yeah. it was torn down. Um, just because it was so classic and so historic and even though you couldn't stand up in the in the dugout because it was like five eight or something like that so it was kind of funny um but yeah i mean we ranked all the different locations and the fans and um you know and and now it's pretty incredible to be you know running the a's and operating the oakland alameda coliseum when you know we went there all those years ago and had a great experience well, uh, thank you for putting Femway at the top of the list. That makes me very happy. I have a smile on my face right now. <laughs> two, two years ago, you drew 56,000 people to a home game against the Giants. How the heck did you do that? Well, that was playing on really that rivalry, the Crosstown rivalry, the Hat Exchange, the McCovey Coast takeover where we brought the ships over, and really creating that rivalry um, locally, which – also creates a lot of media attention. And so we were doing everything we could to play up the Giants-A's rivalry. We opened Mount Davis, which is the area where we used to watch the Raiders, and just sold the whole place out. And the atmosphere was incredible. It was electric. And those are the types of experiences that can draw fans for generations. You know, you remember those amazing games. And so that's one of the most important things now. We're creating more fans for the A's, especially as we move into this new ballpark at the waterfront, getting more notoriety, getting people excited about our young team. And that was a great way to do that. Hey, you mentioned the rivalry. You're playing the Giants this weekend, so uh, that'll be fun. I wish you'd, I mean, you'd like to get 56. Actually, they're at Oracle this weekend, but uh, everybody watching on TV or listening on Bloomberg Radio to the games this weekend. You know, you mentioned that, the that away. We're getting, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned the Raiders. Um, we're not going to see the Raiders playing on that dirt infield anymore. Uh, they've moved to Vegas. What, what was your – does that have any effect, pro or con, for the A's? Well, I mean, I think, you know, for the the fans in Oakland, you know, it's sad because, you know, they had an experience going to those games, tailgating. You know, it was really a, a, almost a cultural experience to be a Raiders fan. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of them will travel to Las Vegas for some of the games, but it'll be different. And so I think it's made people realize with, with them going to Vegas, with the Warriors going to San Francisco, the importance of a professional sports team to a community. It, it's, more, it's, it's more than just even the games. It's the civic pride. It's the community. It's bringing people together across socioeconomic lines together in one location. And especially with baseball, 81 games a year, we probably provide the most of that. And so I think it's brought with it those teams leaving a renewed focus on retaining the A's, making sure that this ballpark gets built, and the city fathers and mothers are, have really taken to that. So that's an important thing for, for our future. This year we are playing baseball in a, in a COVID world. Uh, the NBA, they're in a bubble. The NHL, they're in a bubble. 
the uh, Major League Baseball, uh, they have different rules. Uh, your thoughts about how Major League Baseball uh, is going through this, I and mean, unfortunately we've had what happened to St. Louis and Miami uh, where COVID spread throughout the team. Your thoughts about what's happening in a COVID world? Well, you know, we spent a lot of time in the offseason, and I was involved, you know, as a um, you know, one of the team presidents coming up with the protocols, um, ensuring that we had a system to deal with the fact that there would be positives, uh, that we have more of a hybrid system where teams would play in their home markets. Um, and actually, I think it, we've shown our resiliency that we've gotten you know, 25, 30% of the way through the season. We, of course, have had a couple teams where there have been outbreaks, but you know, the Miami Marlins got back on the field and actually they're doing really well and playing very, very well. They just, just beat the Blue Jays the other day. And so, I mean, we're doing everything we can to adhere to the guidelines, to ensure that there's no spread team to team. And we've seen actually a, a tremendous amount of success. Most of the actual tests have been negative, and we're doing everything we can to play in a safe way and get the games in so our fans can watch them on TV. And so that's been the focus. Um, and, you know, obviously being a, almost a third of the way through the season, we're happy that we've gotten that far, but we have to remain really disciplined to ensure that we can get the season in and get into the postseason and get a World Series run going. And especially, we're a very good team, so we really are incented to make this happen. We're the best team in the American League right now, knock on wood. So it's, it's a key focus for us in Oakland. David, I saw you sitting among the uh, cardboard cutouts with your mask on. <laughs> so if I want a Michael Barr cutout to be sitting in, and he ha- insists that he has to wear a Detroit Tigers hat, First, we'll How take up happen? two seats. <laughs> well, if you if you want a Detroit Tiger hat, then you end up in the visiting fan section. <laughs> the fan section is up on the top of Mount Davis, and that's where all the Eagles hang out. So you better watch out when you pick up your uh, <laughs> your cutout. It might be uh, it might have bird guano all over. So, uh, but if you wear if you wear an A's hat, you could actually be down near the field. And we I think we have over ten thousand cutouts and. We even have one with Tom Hanks, which is really cool because he reached out to me. He His first job ever was selling peanuts and popcorn at the Oakland Alameda Coliseum back in the 70s. And uh, so we had his voice in the actual speaker system, you know, get your hot dogs, get your ice cold beer. We have his cutout. We have a lot of celebrities. We have obviously all the fans. And, and it's just a fun thing to do to, like, keep it light and fresh. And people always want to know where their seats are. And, and we even have the foul ball zone. So, like, if you're in the foul ball zone and you're – cutout quote-unquote catches a foul ball we authenticate it and we fedex it to your house and then boom you get the souvenir like you caught it which is really cool love it (laughs) hey dave thanks so much for the time i really appreciate it thanks for having me guys take care guys that was an interesting interview and you know somebody asked him about the similarities to minor league i think michael asked him about minor league baseball i i did minor league baseball a long time ago and those guys work so hard to do whatever they can to try and get people to the stadium and that's kind of what the a's have to do even though they're a major league team on a fun note 30 stadiums in 38 days and he mentioned one drive was about a thousand miles overnight to get to uh, the stadium. Uh, and as, when he mentioned that he was on the Today Show, it dawned on me. It's like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. It just, I just didn't put it together at first that uh, it was the same person. But 
Do you guys ever want to do that? You guys ever want to? I've thought about it, but I don't know. It's a lot of driving. I I like to visit all of the NASCAR tracks on the circuit. (laughs) Leave that for you. (laughs) I I did drive cross country when I got out of college one time, and I stopped at every ballpark that was on route. Um, And one of them was actually a, 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 a. Denver of Broncos preseason football game. But uh, my takeaway from this conversation was, you know, the Raiders have gone to Vegas, the Warriors have gone to San Francisco, and he's committed to remain rooted in Oakland. Uh, whether they get this new privately financed stadium down at the Howard Terminal on the waterfront or they have to stay in the Coliseum and renovate, he thinks it's important that a that a major league franchise remains in Oakland. And that was my takeaway. And I'll tell you what, this guy is, uh, you know, if I'd lived in Oakland and this guy I was the president of my local team. I'd be pretty happy with him because uh, he's very, very impressive, and I was just very entertained talking with him. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Well, well, well. Welcome to the show, John. (laughs) It's time now. What have I gotten myself into here? Oh, yeah. (laughs) For the number of the week. It can't be worse than Kelly, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it was funny. (laughs) We could have ripped off Kelly, man, like big time with one of the questions. Anyway, I won't even go into it. Here's the question. Uh, The sports betting industry... Uh, generated this much money in taxes last year. The reason why I bring it up is because with no college football, uh, they're going to take a hit uh, this year. So what I'm going to ask is last year, the sports betting industry, how much did it generate in taxes? Just in taxes? In taxes. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Mike. Oh man! Well, we Steph, even, Steph, you have to go I, first. Steph. No, why do I have to go first? I can. Isn't like prices right? And I can do one dollar more or something, and then I can get win the it's prize. Something like the prices. Something like the prices, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll throw out a billion dollars. Uh, I'm going to say sixteen billion. <laughs> wow. You have all overbid big time. <laughs> the sports betting industry generated $118 million in taxes last year. In taxes. So, you know, and, and that's going to take a big hit this year without football, the college football in some areas. So, Oh, you did yeah. great, guys. That's all I won. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was uh, you know... Eight hundred million off, but I won. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you won. You're on. You're on stage, even though it's an overbid. It's all. I hope. I hope the bosses aren't listening to this because they're not very good at the at the business of sports. Obviously. I mean, I hope you play plinko, man. <laughs> You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time. Plus online, wherever you can get extended versions of this and all our interviews. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm John Stashower. And I'm Michael Barr. You can find me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Mike Lynch. You can find me at Lynchy WCVB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.